Let's have some fun, bro. Jonathan, I appreciate you doing this, my friend. I'm so glad. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. We do. And I'll be honest with you, you're not supposed to fanboy out. But like eight or nine years ago, when I started the podcast, I'm like, you know what? Let me get a holy grail of baseball players, basketball players, authors. And you were always on my holy grail of authors list. And I mean that. So I'm like beyond stoked to have you on now. There's like 10 dudes. You were always on the top. So I'm stoked to do this, man. Oh, thanks. That's awesome. First time you saw someone reading your book in public, where were you and what'd you do? Well, you know, it's it really hardly ever happened. Like I've seen it. So let's say I'm, I'm doing a talk, right, at a hotel or something like that. Then the next day I see somebody reading it at the pool. That doesn't count because that's not random, right? I was just there. There's people at a conference. That doesn't count. The first time I ever just saw somebody in random at random, I look at, I'm at Starbucks. This is just like a month or two ago. I'm at a Starbucks in St. Louis and I'm having coffee with Gerald Early, who's one of my writing heroes. And I look up and the table next to next, back behind Gerald, there's a guy with my with my King book on the table with him and he hasn't he's not open he's not reading it he's texting you know but there it is that's and I, I said Gerald this has never happened before in my life I gotta say something to this guy he's reading my book and Gerald says go so I went over there and I said hey uh, I wrote that book and he goes you're Jonathan Haig and I said <laughs> I said yeah I wrote that book. he said I, I loved your Garrick book too wow I was, like, <laughs> I was like it was unbelievable it was such a great moment that's super cool yeah. I, re I remember the first time I heard you, you were Mike Francesa talking about the Garrick book. and um, Oh, my God. That was an epic interview. I remember oh my that God. so well. Yeah, I remember I went out and bought the book the next day. I went to Barnes & Noble in Union Square the next day and bought that book. So, But every one of your interviews are about the your books and your characters in the book. I want to talk a little bit about you because you're Brooklyn-born, but where did you grow up? I grew up in Rockland County, New York. Went to Spring Valley High School. Um, town, town was called Muncie. Uh, now they call it Airmont, but, um, you know, 30 miles north of Manhattan. Did you come down the city a lot? A lot, yeah, especially as a teenager, because me and my high school buddies would take the bus into Port Authority, <laughs> and we'd go, you know, you could get into bars in Manhattan. You couldn't get into bars in Rockland County, but you could, we'd go drinking. We'd go to clubs. We'd hear music. Uh, I went to jazz clubs. I used to, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and all these great guys, like in the village, Um and, um, and then we take the last bus home out of Port Authority, like at one o'clock in the morning and make it back, left our car at the Grand Union, um, drove home and uh, be in bed by like two. It was awesome. Now you worked in, I know you live in Chicago, you worked in New Orleans, Dallas, all over. What New York food do you miss the most when you're not living here anymore? Pizza. You know, the pizza is just not good anywhere else. Bagels rank number two in my, in my uh, <laughs> list of what things I miss. First job growing up. As a kid, newspaper delivery. Uh, when I was like 11, 12 years old, I would uh, load up my the satchels on the back of my bike and and ride around delivering newspaper. That was a hard. That was maybe the hardest job I ever had. Because yeah. <laughs> you know you had to do it every day. You couldn't be late. You had to collect. You had to go door to door once a week. And yeah, I did it money. too. I, I worked for the Daily News. I used to have to collect in the mornings uh, at the end of the week every week. Oh my god! And people would get pissy, like you know, I'm not paying you. The paper sucks. I'm like, dude, I'm 12 <laughs> years old. It's not my problem that you don't like the paper. When did you really start uh, writing stuff? Like, Did you submit to newspapers or like school newspapers? When did you start really writing? Yeah, I started writing for my junior high school paper in like seventh grade. My first story was covering um, the, the, the – um, was covering this, the, this field trip to the ski. They went skiing like after school, like kids went skiing. And I, I, I still remember I wrote so – like what has, you know – 
one bus, 22, you know, 32 skis and blah, blah, you know, it was like a terrible lead. Uh, but I started writing for the junior high school paper and I just loved it because I was a shy kid. And when I had a notebook, I could talk to people. Oh, that's interesting. Do you remember the first article that really got steam either when you were younger or your, your first newspaper? Like, wow, people are actually reading this. Mm, I don't know. You know, when I was in high school, I got in trouble because I wrote a story about how the <laughs> uh, one of the faculty members was stealing money from the seniors um, like prom fund and there was money missing. And I got in big trouble. Like I called the principal's <laughs> office and said, you can't report this. It's going to, you know, the budget's going to be voted down if, if there's rumors of corruption in the schools. And I said, I'm, I'm printing it anyway. If yeah. that's true, I'm printing it. Um, I stood up to the principal. Was it true um, though? I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> the best of my, I, I was not exactly a forensic accountant. I don't know, but I think, I think I had the story right. I didn't get sued. Yeah. What, uh, what made you go to Northwestern? Uh, just because I thought it was the best journalism school. And um, they had a summer program for high school journalists. And I did that when I was 17 years old. And I just fell in love with that program. I fell in love with Northwestern. And it's the only school I applied to. I got in early. I, they accepted everybody who attended that summer program, it turned out. Because otherwise, I had no chance. I was like a B, B minus student. I never would have got into Northwestern. Famous alumni from uh, Northwestern. You guys have a ton. Yeah, Stephen Colbert was there when I was there. I never met him. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Harry oh. Lennox. Um, okay. Him I knew. We were we were friendly, although mostly he used to just come into the Daily North, Northwestern office and complain about the stories we were writing because he was a <laughs> he was one of the leaders of like the African American student group on mm -hmm. council and and whenever we wrote something that he didn't like he would come in and then, you know he's this big guy with this beautiful booming voice he'd say John very disappointed in you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Harry's a great guy. We're still friends. When when you leave Northwestern, I know you went down to New Orleans and Dallas. How does that work? Because the truth, you you kind of have, you're like a top prospect coming out. What made you choose to write down there? Did you want to go down there? Did you submit it to Philly, New York, LA? What made you guys go down to New Orleans? I, I applied for 60 jobs. I applied Stop for 60 it, really? newspapers. Yeah, 60. Okay. Um, I got an internship at the San Jose Mercury News. I really wanted to stay there. They didn't keep me. They didn't hire me. So then I applied to 60 newspapers and I just went, I just, I just went to the biggest and best paper that I could get. So I got, I think two or three offers out of those 60. One was Jackson. One was, um, one was St. Augustine. Okay. One was St. Petersburg, but it was like in a suburban bureau and one was New Orleans. That was also a suburban bureau, but I just figured New Orleans was more fun than St. Petersburg. And what were you writing about? Whatever they wanted me to write about, you know, the suburban politics, government, uh, crime. I was assigned to the city of Gretna, Louisiana, which is across the river from New Orleans. And I would cover the Gretna City Council meetings, planning and zoning commission meetings. Every morning I'd go to the police department and check to see who was arrested the night before on my way into work. And, um, and uh, lots of other little towns, like even smaller than Gretna. Uh, Jean Lafitte, wow. Marrero, West Wego. I was covering all these little towns with, you know, which they'd never seen like a a, you know, a, a New York Jew before. So it was crazy. It was a, it was a lear real learning experience. And I'd never met Cajun people before. You know, it was, it was like foreign. It was like being a foreign correspondent for me. In the back of your mind, you always, because this was like the late 80s, right? 86, 87. Did you always yeah. know you wanted to write a book? I'm going to eventually be an no, author. No, oh, no. Oh, really? No, no way. I didn't think I had that in me. I didn't think I had the chops or the ambition. I never met a writer um, growing up. Like, you need a telescope to see like the nearest you know, intellectual or a historian <laughs> living where I grew up, you know? Um, and it wasn't until I got to college that I actually realized that you could meet people who wrote books and that like college professors, some of them had written books. Um, so I just wanted to be a journalist. I just thought that was like the highest calling. 
I wanted to be a newspaper guy, you know, I wanted to be Jimmy Breslin. I wanted to be Mike Royko. That was probably my, my ultimate dream was to be like a city columnist in a big city newspaper. Um, but uh, I never forget this. You know, when I was in New Orleans, uh, one of my editors said, you know, I had written this, this really interesting story about this one corner in New Orleans where there was a lot of drug dealing going on. And I interviewed the drug dealers. I interviewed the cops. I interviewed the people who lived there. I interviewed... Um, just everybody. And my this editor said, you should write a book about that corner. And I said, I don't know how to write a book. You know, it was great advice. Like it would have made a terrific book. In fact, you know, um, what's his name? This um, Simon, uh, David Hom- Simon. Homicide. Wrote, yeah. Wrote the, wrote a book called the corner, Yeah, that, you know, became a monster bestseller and turned into a TV series. Right. So my editor was, was smart, but I just didn't even, I, I couldn't even imagine writing a book at that point. So when does the idea to write a book about Lou Gehrig come to you, come to mind? Obviously, I'm, I'm assuming growing up a Yankee fan, right? Yeah, huge Yankee fan. So as I got older, I started writing magazine stories. I began to think, wow, some of these stories are so interesting. You know, maybe I could turn them into a book one day. And I had a couple of magazine stories that I actually talked to people about. Like I, I, I met an agent. I talked to him. And I said, do you think this could be a, a book? And so I was starting to think about whether I could ever write a book. Um, and then I was reading, I was reading Seabiscuit. And that was really what Laura Hillebrand, yeah, love that book, and it, it blew me away. And I started thinking, like, this is so much more than a sports book. And so many sports books are really lacking in sophistication, especially back then. Now, sports <laughs> books are much better. Um, and I, I just thought, like, I wonder if I could basically copy the Sea Biscuit formula and find something that's bigger than sports. Uh, find, a, you know, because you what you've got is the sports helps you move the story along. You know, the competition is great. It's it's full of action and you start to care about somebody, but then you realize that it's bigger than just the outcome of the games. And just over dinner with my wife one day, I said, you know what might work like like Seabiscuit might be Lou Gehrig because it's really more than a baseball story. It's a tragedy about a man dying in his prime. And that's just a universal you know, story that everybody can relate to. And, you know, um, you just use the baseball to get to the to the ALS. And maybe I should try to write a Lou Gehrig book. And um you know, my wife, to her credit, said, like, go for it, hot shot. <laughs> now, this is going to sound silly, but do you go around? Do you need permission to be the Lou Gehrig guy? Do you because I want to know, like I do a podcast on the side. It's fun. I'll reach out to you. I'm like, oh, I had these guys on. I, you know, I try to bulk up my resume. You had a good resume writing all over. But now you're writing a book about Lou Gehrig, the Iron Horse. How do you even go about doing that? Like, do you call the Yankees? I'm, I'm, I want to know how you started because now you're yeah, heavy. How do you start? That's what my wife said too. Like, do you need permission <laughs> from his family or from the Yankees? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just going to see what happens. Like until somebody stops me and says, Hey, sorry, you can't do that. I'm just going to see how far I can get. And um, I checked to see, and there were no Garrett relatives alive. None, not even like a distant cousin because, you know, he had no siblings and he had no children. So, and his wife had, had only one sibling and, and that guy had no children. So, I couldn't even find like in-laws, nothing. Um, and Carrick had um, nobody, no estate. Um, there was a company that like marketed his 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 name, and um, I just so nobody was getting in the way. And the Yankees weren't going to stop me. Like I, I mean, they they don't own Gehrig. Um And then I realized that what I really needed to do was understand his personal life and his and his how he handled the illness that that was the key to the book so i called the mayo clinic and i said could you please send me lou gehrig's medical records 
<laughs> and they just laughed what? at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, they just laughed. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I got to find some other way to, to tell Lou Gehrig's story besides the baseball. And that was the challenge because he was really shy. He didn't keep a memoir. He didn't write diaries. He didn't, um, I couldn't find, you know, too many letters that he wrote. But in the course of my research, and this was like two years into my work, I found letters that he wrote to his doctor, uh, 200 pages of letters. Mm. And that changed everything because now I really had a story. And now I really knew like what he went through in a way that nobody had any, nobody had ever seen these letters were you close to giving up if you didn't have those letters? Like, okay, I, I know I invested two years, but where am I going? No, I was going to do it anyway. And I thought about how am I going to handle those years of his illness? And I thought, I'm just going to have to write about what people with ALS go through. And I won't be specific to Gehrig. And that's okay. going to be, pro it's not going to be great. It's going to be a problem. But I'm going to have to find a way to deal with that. And of course, hoping all along that I would get some better indication. I talked to a doctor at the Mayo, who worked at the Mayo, Mayo Clinic who had seen Gehrig's medical records. And that was tantalizing because I just kept saying, can't you just like slip up, slip me a copy? Can't, what if they just showed up in my mailbox, you know, with, a, with no return address? And he was like, nah, that's not happening. <laughs> but he did say that he would read the book for me before it was published and tell me if I was getting anything wrong. Oh, wow. And he, because he knew what, you know, what the Mayo Clinic had, had done for Garrick. So, so that gave me some comfort. And then when I found these letters and they were, you know, it was both ends of the correspondence too. So the doctor saved, I have to explain this to kids. The doctor saved his carbon, carbon copies of his letters to Garrick. So he had his letters to Garrick and Garrick's letters to the doctor and they had all been preserved. Wow. That's like the treasure chest of all treasure. That's like the Goonies finding the one-eyed Willie's treasure, man. Wow. <laughs> exactly. That's how I felt. This is going to go for Ali, MLK, all your other books. Um, do you consume, because some authors don't, do you consume every book, every article, every, well, I don't want to say podcast, every interview we ever did? Are you just all consumed Garrick, Ali, Martin Luther King, or are you kind of doing your own thing so you're not influenced by anyone else? No, I try to read everything, and I try to reach out to those other writers. One mistake I made in the Garrick book is I didn't call Ray Robinson, who wrote the earlier mm -hmm. book about Garrick, like 25 years earlier. I didn't call him because I was afraid he'd be jealous that I was trying to write a new book and that he might try to shoot me down or he might tell people not to talk to me or that, oh. I don't know. And I wish that I had called him because when I finally met him, after the book came out, we did an event together at Yankee Stadium. And he said to me, why didn't you call me? I would have loved to have helped you. The, your book is terrific, but like, I have some more stuff that you could have used. And I was like, oh, all right, don't be, so next time don't be paranoid. And now I reach out to everybody. I reach out to everybody who's written about the subject and I read everything and I ask them for their notes. I ask them for their files. And most people are really generous. I'm going to use this word intimidated a lot because if you're intimidated writing about these heroes and these icons, picking a person who had everyone we played with were passed away. For me, that would be so intimidating. And yet you took it on. Wasn't that like, okay, who do I interview? Like I'd be so stressed out even thinking about that. Yeah, I don't like it as much. Like Ali was fun because everybody was still alive. I mean, you know, most of the people who knew him well were still alive. And I could go interview them and they were just crazy and it was nutty interviews and really cool people. Uh, but with Gary, it was hard. I think I found 30 people who had met him who were still alive when I started that book. Because I started on that book in the late 90s, Oof. Uh, maybe early 2000s. And I found guys like Billy Werber, you know, who joined the Yankees in 27 as a right out of college. Um, and Tommy Henrik was still alive. So, you know, I found a few guys who, who remembered Gehrig, but not very many. 
Let me ask you this. When did you know this book blew up? For me, it blew up with Francesa. That interview was iconic. Was it after that show? When did you know, like, holy crap, the book's huge now? <laughs> you know, I can remember exactly that moment because um, the book came out and it, did it was doing OK. Uh, it was selling pretty well. It didn't get reviewed in The New York Times for a while. So that kind of delayed the takeoff. Mm -hmm. But then um, Regis Philbin, somebody called me and said, you got to turn on the TV, turn on Regis Philbin. And, and I turn it on. Regis Philbin is sitting there holding up a copy of my book. And it's like a week before Father's Day. And, you know, nothing but mostly women watch that show in the you know, it was like 8.30 in the morning. And he goes, so I just read this great book. I couldn't believe it. Lou Gehrig, I'm a huge Yankee fan, but I thought I knew Lou Gehrig. I didn't know anything about it. This is tragic. In, in like a minute, in 60 seconds, he summed up my book more beautifully than I ever could. And I, and I was watching this like, I want to buy that book. Oh my God, I got to get that book. Like, it was beautiful. And that week I hit the New York Times bestseller list. What, and how'd you get it to Regis? Did you send it out to all different talk guys? One of my college friends, uh, Lori Schulweiss, was his producer. And she said, send me a copy of the book. He's a huge Yankee fan. And she slipped it into his bag as he was leaving for the Hamptons that weekend. Come on, really? And, and he came back in the office on Monday and he said, that book you gave me was awesome. I'm going to talk about it on the show today. And Lori emailed me and said, turn on the TV. I think you're a three-time New York Times bestselling author. Is that correct? I think it's four now. Oh, sorry, sorry. I shortchanged you. How do they notify you? Like, hey, you're a New York Times. Do they call you, email? How does that work? Um, usually your editor hears about it first because they release the lists um, to the publishers and they release the whole magazine. They used to send the magazine like a printed copy by, like, by courier to the publishing houses <laughs> before it hit the newsstands. And that's how I found out. Um, do you get a gift like or a plaque or something from it? My agent usually sends me like a framed copy. I may have it here. My agent sends me a framed copy of the list. Here it is. Um, oh, wow. Luckiest man, number 10. That's incredible. Yeah. So my agent does that as a gift. Like, really nice. I'm not dismissing your three other books. The Jackie Robinson book, which I read, which was awesome. And I know Capone and Birth of the Pill. I didn't read those two. When did the idea to write a book about Muhammad Ali come about? Um, it was really... Um, lucky in a way. I was talking to Jane Levy, who wrote the great Mickey Mantle oh, book. She's coming on in two weeks. Oh, she's a great friend. Oh, and yeah. One of my favorite writers. And she was still thinking about whether to do the Babe Ruth book. And she called me to talk about it because I did. Big Gary fellow. Reagan. That book was incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that book. And I, so we, as we were talking about it, she was like, I think I'm going to do it. I said, you should do it. You should do Babe because like other than Muhammad Ali, who's more important in sports than Babe Ruth? And then I hung up. I said, wait a second, Muhammad Ali. That's a great idea for a book. Like there is no Ali biography out there. Um, you know, there's the Thomas Hauser book, which is an oral history yeah, yeah. and it's written with Ali's permission. So it doesn't give you all the, all the dirt. And, um, and there's a David Remnick book, which just covers the first few years of his career. Nobody had done the big serious biography. So I just thought, wow, I can't believe nobody's done that yet. I wonder if I could get away with it. I wonder if like, I could get the contract to do that book. And uh, I started reaching out to Ali's friends and family and started to get some of them to communicate, to, to cooperate. And, and that was it. When you're doing these interviews, and I know you've done hundreds of them, are you, I know you're making notes, are you writing the book, thinking about how you're writing a book, or do you just consume all interviews, put it all together, like a thousand pieces of paper, and then put it together? 
in the beginning, like for at least a year, I'm not even thinking about writing. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can. Because if you start writing too soon, you're just wasting your time. You're not an oh, expert okay. yet. You know, you know, you don't really have con- command of your material. Um, and, and you end up just having to re- rewrite it all. So I'll spend at least a year just doing research, reading, interviewing everybody, figuring out, and then getting a sense like in your gut, what's this story really about? You know, Ali's story is about race, it's not about boxing. You know, you just got to figure out what it is that, you know, what your message is, what your theme is going to be. And then gradually I'll start writing. You know, I'll say, okay, I think I know enough now that I can start to write about Ali's childhood. And I'm just going to concentrate on that. And I'm still doing interviews with everybody, but I'm going to concentrate on writing just about his childhood and, you know, take it one, build it one brick at a time. Ali is, uh, listen, it's Ali, the greatest, you know, one of the most famous people in the world. Everyone wants to be in his circle. So right now, if you're going to write a book about, let's say, Derek Jeter, you know who's in his circle. Ali, everyone wants to be in his circle. They want to say stuff like when Mickey Mantle almost hit the ball out of Yankee Stadium, Billy Crystal said it was 500,000 people in Yankee Stadium. Everyone was there. So everyone probably wants to be in Ali's circle. How do you um differentiate? Like, okay, this story is legit. This is bullcrap. This guy just is, wants to be in. How, how do you do that? It's so hard because, like you said, everybody wants to say they were his best friend. Yeah. Every, and Ali, Ali really was like the most social guy in the world. He had so many friends and everybody really felt like he was their best friend. So you got to just be as, you know, as, as skeptical as you can. And, you know, you try to have to verify, you know, because people tell you these stories that they, you know, they traveled with him here. They traveled with him there. They all these women will say they slept with them. Yeah. I'll never forget. I did tell you this one story. I've never told anybody this story. So I go to Ali's brother's house. He's living in uh, in public housing, you know, um, in, in Louisville. And uh, I, 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 I walk into the lobby and I ring him from downstairs and I'm waiting for him to come down the elevator. And there's this old woman, you know, in a wheelchair sitting there waiting in the lobby. And I say, hello, how you doing? She says, good. I said, uh, you know, Rahman Ali, I'm waiting for him. And she says, oh, yeah, Rahman, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali's brother. I said, yeah, yeah. She said, I screwed him. <laughs> I, said, I said, Ali or uh, Muhammad or, or Rahman? She said, Muhammad. Um, she said, really? Yeah, you know, we, we were at a dance. We were teenagers. And he wasn't very good. He just, he just, he rushed too much. He was in too much of a hurry. <laughs> that I believed. I have no doubt she was telling the truth. What was your initial thoughts or, you know, um, feelings about Ali before writing the book? Well, I grew up a huge fan. You know, I was okay. born in 64. So by the time I'm, you know, 11, 12 years old, he's the king of the world. He's the, he's the most exciting athlete on the planet. Uh, I had his poster on my, on my ceiling, actually, not on my wall because I ran out of wall space. Cool. Uh, I had so many, you know, athlete posters. Uh, but I just thought he was in another category, you know, he's, he's so much more than a sports star. He was, you know, he was bold. He was brave. He was um, radical. He was hilarious. Like, I don't think I appreciated how you know sad some of his life was, you know, but when I started the project, I just thought like maybe my, you know, the favorite person of my, of my time, you know, do you ever hesitate to write some of the stuff like, you know, the cheating, some of the girls, you know, questionable how old some of them are, his outside the ring antics. Ever get like, oh, should I even write that? Do you ever think about like, crap, should I put that in? People might not, people might get mad at me because that might be the one blurb that comes out. Does that ever bother you or worry you? I was really worried that that would dominate the response to the Ali book, that people would obsess over how bad his he was to women, especially the fact that there was that 
underage girl mm-hmm. that he was sued by. Um, and I tried to, you know, certainly wasn't looking to, um, to wallow in that stuff. You know, I was trying to keep it as low key as I could, but also be honest. I feel like if you're not honest, you lose all credibility. And um, I tried to just balance it. Right. And um, I was pleasantly surprised that people really didn't obsess over that. I really worried that that would be the, you know, the substance of every book review, like um, that he's, uh, you know, that he was terrible misogynist, which he was, but it didn't, you know, people didn't, didn't make that big a deal out of it. So I was, I was relieved. Do you go back and watch like every fight that you could? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's one of the great things about doing this book in this era is that you can watch the, the fights um, you know, at a, just a one click. On, <laughs> on, 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 they're all on YouTube. And a lot of people who read the book told me that they would, you know, pause and, and watch the fights, you know, after they finished reading my description of the fights, which is very different. You know, it's a very different world we're living in now. And readers, I mean, writers have to think about that. That was exactly what I was going to say to you next. You told me he, you know, people thought he lost to Norton, Ernie Shavers. I'm like, oh, hold on. I stopped reading your book, went on YouTube, watched it. I'm like, oh, he was right. And went back on it. And even when you, um, because I had a few boxing trainers on, refs, other boxers, and they all said the same thing. Listen, Ali is great. Like, he wasn't the greatest. If you want to go analytically wise, he wasn't, you know, top 10, but whatever. That's just, obviously, everyone can argue that. And you put all the stats out there. You made me go back and, like, look on YouTube. Was Ali the greatest? Like, I spent half the time on YouTube. <laughs> and So was that fun for you going the analytical route? Because you couldn't do that 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. The other thing is that when you've got the time, you're writing a book, you've got four years, whatever, five years, you can do anything. So I called up CompuBox and I said, can we count every punch from every one of Ali's <laughs> fights? Can I hire you guys to do that? And they said, we'll do it for free. That's a great idea. Um and they went and watched. There was only like three fights that we couldn't find the full video for. They counted every punch from every Ali fight. And that's the same thing I did with his speech. I hired these um, speech scientists to measure Ali's speaking ability over the years to see how much he was suffering from the blows to the head. Like you can only do that if you've got time, you know, yeah. like the luxury of working four years on a project. I love that. You know, you think Ali, you think boxing, but you also think outside the ring, of course, like he was involved in Saddam Hussein, the releasing of the hostages. There was, where was he that he might, he might've been in the same place that bin Laden was like, this man was yeah. everywhere. That, that part, I read that. I'm like, hold on. I started Googling. Like, can you talk about that? Cause that part of the book like jumped out at me. Yeah. And sometimes I wish that I'd spent a little more time on those, on those, those days in Ali's life. Like I, I felt like I rushed through it a little bit um, in the book because the book was already getting so long, but Ali's, post-boxing career was was sad in many ways but it was fascinating because he was you know at the nexus of this um struggle as to overcome the prejudices that americans had toward islam and then the prejudices that the islamic world had against america and ali was really a a central figure if you think about the idea that he might have been in a in a tent in peshawar and that osama bin laden might have been in the audience and there were people who really i've seen the video this guy it could have been him um Think about that. Like if Ali had reached him, if Ali had like, maybe Ali, you know, for a moment there was able to get through to Bin Laden and, and say, you know, okay, all, not all these Americans are are evil. Like that's just, that's insane to think about. It, it's so, I mean, the Saddam Hussein thing, he's involved in like every, every, he was in the Philippines and Africa. He was everywhere. Yeah. So he's with, yeah, he's with, uh, uh, he's with, um, why am I blanking on the same now? Um, Idi Amin. Uh, he's with Idi Amin. He's with, you know, Mobutu. He's with, you know, he's, 
because he's Ali, he feels like he can go anywhere and he can do anything. And it's he's always going to be the hero. He never has any doubts. I think Idi Amin is the only one who really scared him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think Idi Amin, he, he looked at his, at his guys and said, we got to get the hell out of here. This guy's crazy. <laughs> when you had the privilege of talking to all these boxers about Ali, what is their opinion of Ali? You know, they always say he was the greatest. He was a hero. I love the man. But they're boxers, right? They're 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 fighters and they're competitors, and there's still this bitterness. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, George Foreman is still pissed. Like, he wasn't that great. I I could he be drugged me. Yeah, I was he drugged me. Uh, same thing with you know with Larry Holmes. Like, yeah, he gets all the credit. Fine, you know, I, I love Ali, but like, he was you know. You sure wouldn't want to leave him near any women in your life, you know, like, you know, like they, 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 they always take these shots, but they're, you know, it's, it, when you get, when you get some time with them, when they're, especially when they're off camera, when they're on camera, it's like, Ali's like the Dalai Lama, he's a saint. But then like you get them off camera and they're like, you know, he was stupid. He took too many punches, dumb idiot. Like the, the wonder he's, no wonder he's, he's all messed up. You know, they look at me. I can still talk. I can still, you know, pronounce you know what good words <laughs> one more thing about ali true or false did you use your daughter as a pawn to meet ali is that true i read 100%. that somewhere okay can you tell me that because I, I heard that you your daughter got you to meet him what was you took her with you what's the story 100 percent true so um lani ali was really being cagey like i'd met her three or four times and she kept saying you know yeah you should come meet muhammad and, but i'm not sure if we want to do an interview and um then i was sending her a letter and I was putting in some pictures that I found that I thought she might get a kick out of. And I found like the wedding certificate for Ali's parents. And I thought she should have a copy of it. So um, my daughter who was five at the time came into my office and I'm in my, my office is the laundry room as you can see <laughs> over there. Um, and she came in she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm sending a letter to Muhammad Ali. And she heard me talking about Muhammad all the time. And she said, can I send a letter to Muhammad Ali? I said, sure. I gave her a piece of paper. And she wrote, Dear Muhammad, she asked me how to spell Muhammad. My daddy loves you. Do you love my daddy? <laughs> so, and uh, so I said, oh, my God, that's so good. I stuck it in the envelope and Lonnie called me. It was the first time she ever called me on her cell. So I had her, I had her number now. And um, she said, that letter from your daughter was so adorable. I said, I know she, she really wants to, to, to come and and meet Muhammad. And she said, Oh, look, you should come, 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 come visit us and bring your daughter. Um, and I said, okay, um, we'll be there. Like, um, and we flew out like the next week and we went to Muhammad's house. And when we got there, Muhammad was sick and we didn't get to meet him. Oh. So we spent like three hours in his house and I just kept, I used my daughter again, like stall. Like I, I was just like getting her to do, you know, somersaults <laughs> and, you know, you know, showing off her, her, her spelling skills and everything. And like, just hoping that if we stayed long enough that Muhammad would wake up and come out, you know, I had this like fantasy of him like coming up behind me and tapping me on the shoulder and, you know, sparring, but he never came out of his room. Like I could oh. hear him in his bedroom watching TV, but he never came out. So you so, never met him. Uh, I, I did meet him like a few months later. Okay. Um, Lonnie called me and said, he's feeling better. We're going to be in Louisville. We're doing this fundraising event. Um, you should come. So I, I went down and, and met him that night, um, but he couldn't talk. Um, so I, I mean, I whispered in his ear and I told him I was writing this book and that I really was hoping that I would do honor to his story. And I asked him if there's anything he wanted to say, but he didn't answer. He died while writing this book. 
um, on two two part question here. One, emotionally, because you I know how you authors are when you're writing a book, a biography on someone. You get so invested. You know more about them le- legit than they can remember. On part one, how do you feel emotionally? And part two, do you get nervous? Like holy crap, every person now is going to bang out a quick Ali book just to get it, and then my book's going to get lost in the dust. Yes, uh, I was, you know, devastated by his death. Um, I really was hoping that he would live long enough to see the book. Uh, Lonnie wanted me to come and read it to him as soon as I finished, like even oh. before it was published. And I was so scared of that, like the idea of sitting there in his room and reading him the book. Like, I would have done it, of course, but the idea of it terrified me. Um, and yeah, I was worried, but I was, you know, he died in 2016 and I was almost done with the book at that point. So I didn't really think that, yeah, somebody might come out. And someone did come out with like a quick mm-hmm. piece of garbage, but it didn't get any attention. I wasn't too worried because I knew at that point that I was I was lucky that I had started when I did. You're doing a Ken Burns documentary. Are you doing that? Is that coming out? Or are you still doing that? Are you working with them? Um, no, the Ali documentary came out already. I did, did work with Ken. You enjoy the and, process of that? Oh, my God. So great. Yeah. And working with Ken um, Burns must be wild. Yeah. It's like, you know, taking like, painting lessons from Picasso or something, you know, it's like watching him work is amazing. And, uh, you know, I went with him and with his crew and with his son and daughter, uh, son-in-law and daughter on the shoots. We, you know, we interviewed people together and, um, and then I was able to watch in the editing room as they worked on the film because it was during COVID. So they were doing it over zoom and they invited me to sit in on the editing. So it was an amazing process. And, you know, they ended up making this eight hour film about Ali and it's gorgeous. And, and I was just so jealous because, these scenes that I described, they can do it with music and with film and with, you know, you can actually see the punches. It's like, oh man, writing a book is, is, is a weak effort compared to, to making a film. But, you know, as, as, as Ken pointed out, I can go deeper than he can. He can, he can do more with the senses. He can engage the sights and the sounds, but you know, the book could obviously has some advantages. David Marinus uh, did a blurb for the book. Uh, he was just on recently talking about Jim Thorpe book. How do you get him to do a blurb and as a fan, I'm always curious, do a lot of people hit you up to be like, hey, can you do a blurb for my book? Yeah, some people are generous blurbers. Okay, David okay. Marinus is one of them. David is just a great guy. He will, I, I'm not saying he'll blurb anything, but he's but he's very liberal with his blurbs because he was blurbing me before he knew me. And Oh, wow. I, um, you know, he's just a wonderful guy. And I try to follow his example and blurb generously. And, um, you know, if, if, if the book has, you know, if I can help, I figure... If I can help somebody else get a foothold and, and, and sell some books and make a career as a writer, then why shouldn't I? Like, it doesn't cost me anything except a little time to read the book. When I'm reading your Ali book, I knew your uh, King book was going to be next, and I sort of inter- intertwined. When during the Ali book did you be like, okay, I'll go someone bigger than Ali, the greatest you know, <laughs> civil rights activist of all time? When does that come into your mind? Like, oh, you know what? Let me a little post it. I'm going to do a book on Martin Luther King. I really thought there's no way I was ever going to write a bigger book than Muhammad Ali. Uh-huh. I just thought that he's the king of the 20th century. There's nobody bigger. And I'm never, this is going to be the best, most important book of my life. And I'm, you know, after this, it's whatever. And then I was interviewing Dick Gregory for the Ali book. I was in DC at a hotel um, restaurant with him. And he started talking about MLK. And I realized, damn, this guy really knew King. I mean, like a friend, like he knew him really well. And there's still a lot of people out there who knew King really well. And that I could 
as soon as I finished Ali, I could just go around the country and start interviewing all those cats who knew Martin Luther King because he would only be like, at that point, he would have only been like 89 years old if he'd still been alive. So that's when I had the, uh, that's when I realized like, I got to try to do King next if I can get away with it. If I can't, I'm going to try anyway, because even if I just go interview these guys and I, and I don't get a book contract, it's still worth my time just to sit with the people who knew King. Like what a journey that would be. I just realized it was like a golden opportunity, the opportunity of a lifetime, really. What is your, I don't want to say purpose or goal. Like you're writing a book about Ali telling the story, King writing the story. And these, you know, everyone thinks they know everything about it. So what's your purpose of writing these books? Like, I don't know if that's even the right way to say it. I wish I was better with my words. Like your goal of writing these books, like what is the mission of it? I was going to say love. That's going to be like really, uh, uh, yeah, it's love. Like I want people to engage with these people, not just to take them as like these mythological figures. I want them to like really get in the ring with Ali. I want them to really like fall in love with Martin Luther King. I want them to think about them as human beings because we have a tendency to, to turn these, these guys into, you know, objects, stick figures, uh, cartoons and, and if I can help people connect with them as you know in a more meaningful way, then then I just think that's that's amazing. If I can if I can do that, I completely humanize them. Did you um, do you have to like the subject or the person you're writing about? Like, can you invest four years in a person you despise, but there'll be a good story? Yeah, I could. Like, okay, Al Capone. I did yeah. Al Capone. I didn't love Al Capone. <laughs> um, I didn't hate him as much as I thought I would. He was an interesting guy. But I prefer to write about someone I admire. It's a lot of time to invest in somebody if you don't think there's much like redeeming value in their in their story. I know some people, a lot of people want to get paid for interviews. Oh, pay me, pay me, pay mm -hmm. me. I don't know your policy. Have you ever probably missed out on a pretty good interview because you're like, I'm not paying you, I'm not dealing with you? Or do you just eventually break them down by like, by the way, these 22 people already spoke to me. Do you yeah, want me to usually hear break them down? Oh, okay, is that um, Usually, not always, uh, in, in the boxing world, more than any other book oh, I've ever I written, know, people I don't know. want it to be paid because they're used to it. It's, that's the world they live in. You know, Larry Holmes said, no matter how many times I called him, he said, I'm not going to talk to you if I'm not getting paid. Like, that's just the way it is. This is a business. This is my business. Like, there's value in it for you to, to have an interview from me, and you got to pay. And, and uh, Ali's brother, same way. Like Ali's brother, I used to call him. Like I called him 10, 12 times. I would just say, Rachman, I just got one question. What was your dog's name? He said, $1,000. No, no. I said, that was your dog's name? He said, no, it's going to cost you $1,000. Uh, but I broke Rachman down. And, and Larry, he was funny. Larry, um, Gene Kilroy was Ali's manager. And he was always helping me. He helped me get all these interviews. And he calls me one day and he says, I just heard that uh, Larry's in, is in Louisville for this uh, event. And... Um, and he's got to talk. He's got a contract from Sports Illustrated. And the contract says he's got to do interviews. So get your ass down to Louisville. Oh. And Larry Holmes will talk to you. So <laughs> I get down to Louisville. And Gene gave me Larry's cell phone number. So I get down to, <laughs> get down to Louisville. And I said, uh, Larry, this is, this is John Ike. You know, I've been trying to interview. He goes, fuck. <laughs> he knew you got, got him. Got me, man. Meet me <laughs> at my hotel. Uh, and I said, what does Hellie say that? He said, how the fuck should I know? And he hung up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I figured out what hotel he was at. And I, I run over there and uh, I just get to the lobby and Larry's coming down the elevator. He goes, all right, fine. <laughs> about when you're writing this book now about King, uh, the, what is it? You know, let me ask you, 
I'll backtrack. Biggest similarities between King and Ali? True believers, guided by their faith, like willing to die for their faith. Um, absolutely, you know, totally different ways. Uh, warriors for racial justice. I, uh, you invest so much time in your book. I know it's like tunnel vision when you're writing about Ali. Then it's okay. Pause. Tunnel vision now about King. Are you ever thinking writing a book about King by crap? Did I write this about Ali? Did we intertwine this? <laughs> Are you ever thinking about that doubling back? Um, I don't think so. Like I'm so wrapped up in whatever I'm writing about that. Like, I don't think there was ever a moment where I thought that I already used this device or did I already, you know, use this line about Vietnam war or something like that. I don't, I don't think that ever happened. The book ends tragically with assassination. And I wish I was better with, saying how much I love the book instead of hitting five stars because it didn't read like a biography where you're bored. And a lot like the Seabiscuit thing, you're giving so many different avenues. Like you're going down different rabbit holes with each person. Like I never wanted that book to end. It was, I was actually blown away. I was in Aruba reading. I couldn't get off the beach. All I want to do is read that book. I got really bad sunburn because of you. <laughs> the book ends with his assassination. The FBI's files are going to be uh, reopened or you know completely open 2027. Will there be a part two? Will you not part two? Will you follow up with that or no? Are you like yeah, I might done it with depends okay. what the, depends what they what we get in 27. You know, we've we've got most of the transcripts of the mm -hmm. wiretaps, but we will get the tapes in 2027. So if there's some revelations on there, if it shows that the FBI was making stuff up, if it shows that King's behavior was worse than we knew, I would probably add, um, you know. An, an afterword or something to the book or update it in some way. It just depends on what we, what we find. Did that surprise you a little bit? Like we knew the government with race isn't the greatest and a little vicious with Ali and King. Did that surprise you how the FBI, you know, have files on them and stuff? It didn't surprise me. They had files. What surprised me was just how obsessed they were with destroying King. Not so much Ali. Ali, they were relatively, um, relatively passive about, actually, I don't think they saw Ali as, as nearly as big a threat. I think King, they le legitimately feared that he was going to overturn the status quo and, and shake up the white establishment, the white power structure. And they were really like vicious in their attempts to destroy him. Uh, and to the point that I think that they created, they knowingly created the conditions mm -hmm. in which you know, someone would assassinate him. Oof. White dude going up to two of the biggest black icons who ever walked the face of this earth. Is it weird getting interviews? Does everyone be like, you're, you're writing the book? <laughs> so some white dude from New York and Chicago writing the book. You ever get any uh, backlash with that? A little bit, but not much really. You, you just have to earn it. You have to yeah. show that you care and that you're doing your research, that you're, you're taking this seriously. Um, and, uh, you know, I would point out that I'm not just a white dude. I'm like a Jewish white dude <laughs> writing about the most important, important Muslim and the most important Christian in American history. Um, and I just think that makes me work harder. And I hope that people appreciate that. But you know, ultimately, it comes down to whether you do a good job. And if you don't do a good job, you don't get another chance at it. You wrote about three icons, Mount Rushmore type people in the, you know, we're still talking about them from the 20s with Garrick and all that stuff. How about pick one of them, biggest myth or something that turned out not to be true? Like, we'll always use 32 World Series, Babe Ruth called a shot. That's like what he's known for. How about the biggest myth about any of them that turned out not to be true? Uh, Muhammad Ali did not throw his gold medal into the Ohio River. He that, did okay, not. That, that's a good one, yes. And you went into that in the book. That Okay, that because I always heard that, always. Pee Wee Reese did not put his arm around Jackie Robinson on their first road trip in Cincinnati and <laughs> hush the crowd of racists. Um, 
these things, Al Capone did not commit the Valentine's Day massacre, right? And no matter how many times I write about this stuff, people just continue to repeat those lies over and over again because they're, because they're fun stories. Ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? All right, I'll try. You come to New York, you and I are at a bar. You want to impress everyone at the bar. No one cares. You're New York Times, four times best-selling author. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? I was going to say Spike Lee, but I don't know that he'd text me right back. Ooh. Last time he didn't he didn't write back. He didn't text back last time. That's a good answer, uh, though. That's a good one. I uh, just don't know if he'd really text back. I'd be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, I think who else I got? Uh, the rest of them are like nerdy people, like Michael Eric Dyson. He texts me back right away. Um, but that's, you got to be a, kind of a nerd to appreciate that. So we'll roll with Spike Lee. We think Spike, you know what? We'd have one drink by the the last fifth drink, Spike Lee would write back to you, hopefully. He might, he might, yeah. <laughs> Ken Burns, Ken Burns would definitely oh, write me back. That That's a very good one. How about this? You have a lot of stuff. Coolest piece of memorabilia that you own. Can be sports, can be anything else. Coolest I'm piece gonna you own. I'm going to show you. I'm oh. going to show you. So Muhammad Ali made about 12 of these after the Sphinx fight for his entourage. Wow. The ring, what does the ring say? The greatest Muhammad Ali, wow. Yeah, it says Muhammad Ali, three-time champ. And it says, uh, Liston, can't read that. Anyway, uh, the three times he won the championship. That is, that's a great answer. And thanks for showing that to me. That is sick. I I even got the the case that it came in and the receipt. I won't even ask how you got that. How about this? It needs to be in a safe. But it does need to be in a safe. How about this? One be. sporting event in history you wish you could have witnessed live. Jonathan's going to sit front row in any sporting event in the history of the world. Where is it? Probably Ali Frazier first first fight. I was At the Garden. Say, you know, maybe the Babe Ruth called shot would be, would be my other choice. Last time you read a review or left a comment on someone who left a review for you. I don't comment on my reviews. It's okay. hard. I, I always want to. I always want to like, you know, did you actually read the book? You know, (laughs) stupid, (laughs) but I don't, but I don't, I comment on other people's, like my friend's books. I comment on their reviews sometimes. Uh, Do you have a routine when you hit send? You hit send on your, okay. You're finally submitting the King book. Send. It's completely done. Do you have a routine? Do you do something, a drink, something to eat? How do you decompress? No. Although I remember my first book, when I finished the Garrick book, I was on paternity leave. My first child had been just been born uh, like a few months earlier. She was at daycare and I hit send, sent that manuscript off and I went and took her out of school and, and bought her her first ice cream cone. What a great so, moment. Yeah, that was special. What book are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading these essays by Joseph Epstein, who was my teacher at Northwestern. Um, this comes out in April. And I'm reading um, the new uh, James McBride novel, um, which I'm blanking on the title now, Something Grocery. Um, but anyway, it's, uh, it's great. Ever start a book or have like a solid idea or foundation for a book? And for one reason or another, you're like, ah, I'm not doing it. Yeah, it's a couple times. Uh, one, one I spent a whole year on and then bailed. Do you want to um, say what it was or no? Just yeah, it was an Alan Pinkerton biography, though, the first private eye, first mm-hmm. head of the Secret Service. A, I came to really dislike him, and B, okay. I just felt like there wasn't enough material to really bring him to life. Two more. What show is your go-to binge watch? It's one thirty. No one's home. You have any show you want. What do you watch at one thirty in the morning just to binge? The Simpsons. Really? Yeah, I could watch The Simpsons endlessly. The Office is good too, but and it's always on in the hotel, which is yeah. nice. 
And how about this one? I don't know if that's your office. Is that your office right now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was going to ask. And like, my father-in-law I... is staying here on the couch, so it's extra messy right now. I'm sharing my office with the laundry machine and my father-in-law sleeping on the couch. <laughs> that was my question because when I have like true crime guys on, I'm like, I, you know, I picture an office with like the purple and the velvet and dark and candles. So I wanted to see if yours was just sports memorabilia everywhere and just like boxing stuff and stuff. It's a mess and it's really small, so I don't have much room for memorabilia. Bro, this was an absolute blast. I've been wanting to do this forever. And I just went on your website stalking a little bit. And you're going to be in New York in January, I think, twice. Hopefully, we'll link up. Yeah. Bro, this was I an love that. absolute blast, Jonathan. Thank you so much, my friend. Yeah, I want to interview you next time about your various adventures. You're crazy. Just just give the plug, not that you need it, where everyone can follow you on Twitter, Instagram, and all the socials and everything else. Yeah, it's Jonathan Eig on Twitter. It's John Eig on Instagram. And uh, the website's jonathanigg.com. Dude, this was a blast. I hope to see you soon, brother. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. I really enjoyed it. This is you. You did such a. This is one of my favorite interviews of all time. Seriously, I'm not just saying that. That means a lot to me, man. Thank you, brother. That was great. Really great. See you later, all my right. friend. Take care. Bye, bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.